0: Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. So um, it was about two in the afternoon yesterday when the... The cry of victory from my lawn rang forth all over the neighborhood um, at the Sensky house. Um, And it was because, at long last, Daddy had fixed the lawnmower. Yes. It was one of those moments, you know, like I got oil on my hands. There's a smell of gas in the air. Like I got tools. And um, I told my children, who were very curious um, and thought I knew what I was doing, I have no clue what I'm doing. I literally took the pieces apart and I got a new one and I'm going to put them back together and then we're going to hope that it starts. Because the poor thing, the lawnmower, had been sitting there for at least a few weeks because I had gone and I had gone to pull it. To start, and rip the cord in two because of my great strength. Um, no, it was—it's was probably because the cord was really old, as is, is the lawnmower, um, and. It was probably because it hasn't started the best over the years, and I don't know if you've had that happen with a lawnmower, maybe with your car, where you're like, it's not starting, and you're like, if I just turn the key, like, quicker and harder, then maybe the car will start, like, I'll just turn it over again, or with the lawnmower, you're like, if I just pull and pull and pull, somehow, this time, it's going to just, like, fire up and go, Um, which, I mean, it's hard to not do that. But in all honesty, it doesn't often work, (laughs) and there's usually something beyond our immediate control that's required for a car engine or a lawnmower to start, right? I mean, you need air, you need fuel, and you need some spark, and yes, it does help that you pull the string, but usually when those things are not present, all the pulling that you do in the world is not going to get the thing to combust and start moving, So listen, um, last week I started a series, um, not on lawnmowers, but on the gospel. Um, And I started a series um, building around this book called The Gospel-Centered Life. Um, You can see it on our screens. Um, Hopefully you have a copy of this. Um, My gospel community met both the men and women all together on Thursday night this last week, and we did lesson one of the study. It was it was such a beautiful conversation. Um, it really was. Like it, it was like we, we, we got into the scriptures and then got into some, some deeper questions about what is the gospel and how does it go to work in our lives and what is our understanding of God? And, and that was actually the key question for us, I think, that night. Kaylin, um sent it out to the, the leaders ahead of time saying, I think this is the one. like Pay attention to this question. How has your um, understanding, your view of God changed And grown in the past year? Um, And how did that happen? And the great thing about that question, at least in our community, was that some people had an answer. Other people didn't have an answer. Some people said, hey, actually, I don't think my view of God has grown. Maybe it's even diminished. And the honesty in that moment was beautiful. And it was kind of, it was the thing that we're actually longing for, And we're expecting when we get together and and ask meaningful questions about life and the gospel to one another. And so hopefully your gospel community had moments like that um, in this first lesson. And I think there will be plenty more of those um, as we ask some of the really thoughtful questions contained in this study. Um, But listen, if I was to sort of say, well, how, how should I answer that question? because um, I did to think about it ahead of the time. Um, didn't end up sharing that night, but I'll share with you. I, I think my view of God has changed in the last year or so such that I, I, I'm starting to see God as more patient and more powerful than I used to. To sort of come back to our little story here, I'm, be, I'm beginning to see that I can't pull God quickly into action. It isn't about me in my strength yanking and yanking the strings in order to get God to work and move. And now I'm not saying that there isn't some measure of my will and my pursuit of the Lord, but there's something about God's patience and about his power as completely other than me and my action that I'm beginning to grab hold of. And it makes God majestic but also a bit more mysterious Um, because I can't make him do something. And so, um, listen, we're going to think more about that um, over the course of the morning here. Um, But for my note takers, um, we're going to dive into a great passage in Mark's gospel, back into the gospel of Mark. I couldn't stay away. Um, And uh, we're going to look at three things, okay? So if you're jotting something down, I want to ask the question, what do you lack, what do you love, and what do you learn? Okay? There's our roadmap for today. What do you lack? What do you love? What do you learn from these set of verses? Okay? So, let's read again um, in Mark chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 17, as Erica did, um, and we'll go from there. And he was setting out on his journey. That's Jesus. And a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, "'Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?' Now, I think here there's a sort of bit of, hey, good teacher, I'm a good man. Like, let's talk about this, you know? Like, what do I got? Give me a little step forward here. How do I inherit eternal life? Good teacher, what must I do? And Jesus, brilliant as he is, says, well, why do you call me good? <laughs> no one is good except God alone, which is in some ways an invitation to go, okay, who do you, who do you think I am? Right? No one's good except God alone. You're coming with to me asking about eternal life. Do you believe that I'm the one who can actually not just tell you how but give you eternal life? Do you make the connections that others have been making that I am God in the flesh? Do you call me good because you believe I'm God? But he doesn't leave him there. He answers his question, right? You know the commandments. Okay? Do not murder. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother, listing through kind of a whole chunk of the Ten Commandments, leaving some of them out. And he says to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, you've got to see this moment, right? The young man, after Jesus lists these commandments, says, with real sincerity, right, and even devotion, all these I've kept from my youth. You can see sort of the moral compass, the religious commitment in this man. And yet Jesus responds to him and says, even though you've kept all these things, there's one thing you lack. And so his command to him is fourfold. Go, sell, give, and then come. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, come and follow me. Isn't this phrase puzzling? One thing you lack. I mean, at just sort of a bare reading of the passage, the man lacks at least a few things, right? Like, if certainly the first thing he lacks for is he lacks for nothing, right? He is so well-to-do that like, he does not have any kind of need whatsoever, right? He is a wealthy man um, who has his life in order, even has his decision-making, his behavior in order. He does not need anything. But, But then again, you look closer and you go, okay, well, certainly he lacked trust. Jesus gives him a pretty clear path forward. Hey, do this, and then come follow me. I can't imagine, like, that invitation. And and he lacks trust, so he can't actually follow through on the clear instruction of Jesus. But he probably also lacks a bit of compassion, I mean, the opportunity Jesus gives him would have been like a magnanimous act. To give all of his money and to bless the poor in the area would have been an incredible deed. And he probably would have known for certain that there was need in his area. So he, in some measure, lacks a bit of compassion upon the people that he could be helping. But if he lacks those things, what does he have? He has Great possessions. If you read through sort of the original language here, what's going on here is he's saying, uh, he says, he, he or the, Mark, the, the narrator here says, that he had many, much, or great things. The Greek word here for possessions actually is probably a better, like it's, he had things. Now, you might not be holding great possessions. Some of you are. Some of you are not. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus comes to you today knowing that you're holding things. And he comes to you asking, what is the thing that you lack? What do you lack? The one thing that he lacks clearly is to trust all things to God. He can't trust God with his life, with his resources, with his decision-making. He can't trust everything to the Lord. But the odd thing is that Jesus even though the man's wealthy like puts it in his own terms right he asks how can i inherit money language eternal life and then jesus says hey if you give all this stuff away guess what i'm going to give you treasure in heaven but all you have to do is come and follow me he's putting it in his in the guy's language his familiar voc- vocabulary jesus gives him treasure in heaven, but the man's only asking for, what do I do to get eternal life? He can't follow through because he's holding to things. But even though he's holding to those things, and even though he appears well on the outside, Jesus has the ability to see through to what's actually going on. And I wonder if you stopped for a second and said, okay, here I am in the honesty of this moment. The Lord can actually see through all that's going on in my life. He can see through the way that I appear to others. He can see through the way that I present myself to others. He can see through everything that I've got. And he knows what I lack. What would Jesus say you lack? Here's what I've realized about myself and in others over the years that the way that you hide what you lack is to hold tighter to what you've got. The way that you hide what you lack is to hold tighter to what you've got, which is, in many ways, the good news of self. This is the gospel of self that says, here's what I've got. Here's what I've done. Here's who I am. And my hope is in this, the way that I can make. And for Christians, the gospel of self, here's what I've got, can in many ways very quickly eclipse the gospel of Jesus such that we grow so accustomed to hiding and holding on tightly to what we've got that we miss out on the good news because the good news of Jesus hinges a bit on the bad news or matter of fact, the honest truth that you have incredible lack and need. But Jesus, seeing through and looking at the need of this man, doesn't even bat an eye, doesn't, right? He looks at him, he loves him. Man, that phrase, I can meditate on that for, for, I will for years, but he looks on him, and he, he sees him as he is, he looks on him and he loves him. And there we have just the glimpse of the gospel and all of its beauty, that, that, that God the Father sent his Son, the Lord Jesus, into our world, a world of abundant need, a world of incredible lack, such that Jesus might go to the cross and that he might die and go into the grave, that he might rise on the third day, so that the fullness of the Father's love could land squarely on all of our lack. Jesus looks at you and he wants to meet all of your lack with the fullness of his love. The only problem with that good news is we're very good at avoiding it. Just as sort of, some of us talked about this last week in that, the Gospel Center Life Lesson, right, th- there are ways that we minimize our own sin and our own need. We minimize by shrinking the cross in all of its glory and necessity. We downplay, we blame, we exaggerate, we hide, we fake. We have all of these patterns and mechanisms to try and conceal the gravity of our need. But the problem with that is, It shrinks the cross that we need most. Jesus has just finished this wonderful conversation with his disciples and some children. Where the disciples, of course, say, hey, get the children out of here. Like, Jesus has got important things to do. And Jesus says, no, no, let the children come because the kingdom belongs to them. Jesus' teaching is that the kingdom belongs to children, that a childlike heart, a childlike faith opens the door to eternal life. Why? Because a child is almost always willing to reach out and admit what they need. They're willing to embrace help. So, what must you and I do to inherit eternal life? We actually have to come honestly and humbly admitting the things that we lack. But we also have to square with what we love. Let's keep reading. Look at this in verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is this to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the, the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, camel, very large a- animal. Biggest animal sort of in the area right now. Needle, very, very small. All sorts of cute interpretations about like, that's probably the gate in Jerusalem called the camel gate. Not really true, right? The big point here is, I mean, you could squeeze a camel through a needle, maybe, but it's going to come out a string, not a camel. It's just like not happening. Not happening. Not happening. But careful here, lest you read this too simply, to think he's only talking about money. Now, first, I think we should actually hear this as a challenge to those who have wealth. But then, we've got to see what Jesus is trying to make in terms of his point at a deeper level, all right? This is about money, but it's not about money per se. It's it's, it's about what it means to trust in money. And then, of course, what money meant in that time. But regardless of your socioeconomic class here, the fact that you live in this country means that you are wealthy on the world standards. We have a funny way of talking about money where it seems as if everyone, if we sort of look across the board, there are always some, there's always someone, there's always some family, there's always some couple who have more than we do. And so the question of like, are we rich tends to sort of easily settle into our minds and say, no, they are. Like, they're more well-off. They have greater means than we do. Like, our, our, our immediate response is, no, I'm not rich. That person is. But the reality here, if you live in this country, and even on a global scale, right, if, if, you, if you have running water in your house, even more than one tap, that puts you in the wealthiest of the rich across the world, like running water, even hot water, is an incredible luxury, but we take it for granted. The bare fact that we have shelter and utilities, like electricity and water, means that we are rich in the world's standards. But Americans in general tend to not view themselves that way. So we have to hear Jesus' words because they definitely don't mean less than what's on the surface, right? That we should, as Jesus said, be careful not to put our hope on riches because we cannot serve God and money. You cannot have two masters, Jesus taught. You will either love one and hate the other. And when it comes to money, usually you will love that and hate God. But let's go a bit deeper here because they're amazed at Jesus' response, this wealthy man. Why? Well, in the first century, this rich young man would have been a shoe-in to get in because baked into their religious and cultural assumptions was that if you had means, that was a sign of favor, that God's blessing was upon you. And so the disciples, when they hear it's hard for the wealthy to get into the kingdom of God. They're going, well, 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 wait, but if, if, if they're the ones who are blessed, if they're the ones who have life right and are receiving the favor of God, then, then, then how could anyone get into the kingdom? They're the ones most likely. But here it is. Jesus puts on blast their assumptions, so that they might see that the heart of the matter is, of course, to do with money, but not necessarily about money per se. Because what this man's money problem reveals is that he also has a heart problem. That there's something about his possessions, his things, that he cannot let go of. That his heart has held tightly to things and cannot leave them for God. Right? You cannot serve God and money. And Jesus, again, is holding up that simple instruction that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And what can't this man do? He can't love the Lord because he's holding so tightly to other things. Now listen, Because this man lacked for nothing, materially, because he was a doer and achiever, morally, right? this rich man had in many ways adopted a with-me spirituality. I mean, look at his question to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to know how he actionizes it. Like, how how do I do this? Like, his, his approach is, with me, things are possible but Jesus comes with the hard gospel truth of with man, or should we just say with me? This is impossible. But complete the saying, with God, all things are possible. So uh, let's practice this because it actually is hard for us to get it from our minds and our mouths down into our hearts. So say this with me. With me, it is impossible. With God, All things are possible. This is the truth of salvation. With God is the way the gospel works. With me is the way that the gospel of self works. But so many of us have adopted a with-me spirituality that, that we're, we're given to ask the question, how can I do something to get something? How can I do this in order to inherit that? And here's the deal. He's holding forth all the things that he's got, and he's hiding all the things that he lacks, Because when you hold tight to the things that you have, it's usually because you've learned a way of performing or of pretending that are in so, so many ways contrary to receiving the gospel. This is the language of the gospel-centered life that we'll be working through these couple of weeks. And it's this, right? That, That pretending seeks to minimize God's holiness bringing down his standards as if what God requires of us is less than what he does, so that we measure up higher than we would if we just read the Bible for its bare truth. I mean, even think about Jesus. He sort of throws this guy a bone because he doesn't even list the, the first commandment. Right? He doesn't even go, hey, do you love the Lord your God with all of your, with all of your heart, like above, above anything else? And the guy goes, no. If you was to ask him the first commandment, the guy would fail to pass the test. But he sort of sets him up, giving him all the things that he can do, revealing how much he's holding tight to what he's got and how he's hiding what he lacks. But pretending seeks to minimize God's God's holiness, right? I'm not as bad as others. Performing, on the other hand, seeks to maximize our own righteousness. Performing is the way in which we say, listen, God is not so good as he says he is, I can probably be accepted by him by the good things that I have done. And the effect of either pretending or performing in some ways is hiding. Not bringing our honest, true selves. And when we do that, holding to the things that we have, we come to Jesus responding to him in the same way as this man does saddened and leaving, unable to let go. Listen, this is what gospel drift is. Right? When you, even in a Christian conviction, go on to say, you know what? What really matters is what I can offer rather than what Jesus has offered to me. Right? This is what happens with a with me spirituality is we begin to think that with me is the way. But the gospel says that right? in Christ Is the way. In Christ, all things are possible, even the impossible, the reconciling of sinful men and women to the living God. The gospel says there's love despite your lack, right? Would you come and would you bring your need? But the world says, hey, if you show your lack, there is rejection, there is shame, there's disappointment on that side. The gospel says, bring your need. The world says, bury it. Jesus says, come and I'll offer help to you, my child. And the world says, no, no, hide your childish ways. Stand on your own two feet. The longer you operate with a with me spirituality, the tighter you'll start to hold the things. The hold to hold the things that could be your righteousness. And the things you might be holding to might be your own flexibility. It might be your own discipline, right? The things you might be holding to might be your own morality, right? Or your, mo- or your own grace towards those who lack morality. The things you might be holding to could be your own political convictions or your own lack or open-handedness with political convictions. The things that you hold tight to, that holds you down, so to speak, easily become the things that you start to hold over others, and begin to judge them with Because they're the things that you got, that you stand upon. If you think about it this way, if, if what you most long for is a kind of authenticity, right? Because so much in our present moment says, if you could just do you, you would be free. But the reality is, that's just a cloaked version of with me spirituality. If you just do you the way that you want it to get what you need, then all of a sudden, you've done something that holds what you've got and that's hiding what you lack that also short-circuits your own authenticity. Right? The only way that you can actually be free is to be honest. And the only way to be honest is if there's grace and safety for it which the gospel provides. So what do you lack? What do you love? Jesus is inviting you to reflect on those questions, and then I believe the living God is here just saying, hey, what are you learning? What do you learn from the gospel? If we keep reading, I think we left off here in um, verse 27. Peter comes on the scene. Here's verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive one hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And then, still connected, as they were on the road going to Jerusalem, Jesus starts talking with them about where he's going again. And they're amazed as they follow him, and they're afraid about this new idea to go to Jerusalem. And he says, See, we're going over to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Here we have, I believe, this incredible moment of the gentleness and generosity of Jesus because Peter still doesn't get it, right? He goes, wait a minute, if that guy didn't get in because he didn't give stuff up— we've given stuff up. Look at what we've done. And Jesus, I think, in kindness to him and in sincerity says, you're right. Have you learned that I do honor obedience, that I do honor sacrifice, but I honor it not as the means to get what you want, I honor it because it matters to the Lord to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. What Peter's going is, wait a second, like, but is this all for nothing? And Jesus says, no, no, I see you. I see your sacrifice, and I am going to honor that. But when it comes to what's possible with man versus what's possible with God, your obedience doesn't move the needle in that direction. What Jesus is trying to teach and what I hope you learn is that the gospel is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. It is opposed to you stacking up the things that you've done in order to put God in your debt somehow. Obedience matters, but it does not make the way because the way is impossible with man, but the way is possible with God. And Jesus is going to Jerusalem in order to prove that. Jesus is going to, to Jerusalem as the one who did not know sin. Not at all. But he's going to be judged and condemned a sinner. He's going as the one who did know lack. He did know what it was to need the Father's voice. He didn't know what it was to need food. He did know what it was to need, humanly speaking. And so he comes looking to the direction of the Father, following the voice and obeying the, the, the instruction of the Father. Jesus did not hold tight to things, even his own ministry But he opened his hands, spreading them wide on the cross so that a kind of generosity and hope and joy might mark his followers rather than a gritted commitment. Because if you look across the board, there are many religious sects and many ideologies that honor commitment, that honor obedience. And Jesus is one that does as well. But how would the gospel make things different? Well, it would point the question at how do we be reconciled with God, not at what man can do and earn, but at what God can provide, such that his great love might meet our areas of lack. I mean, what did Jesus lack? In all honesty, nothing on the cross. What did he love? Well, he went there and he loved the Father perfectly. And as an overflow, loved all of us in all of our imperfections. Jesus has gone to chart a new way forward. One out of, a way out of religiosity. And a way toward freedom and joy. Right? He is so gentle with Peter. But he also is speaking here with all the surrounding themes To the childlike. I mean, you see hints of it even here, right? Jesus is saying, hey, like, to the children belongs the kingdom. Jesus helps the childlike. He helps them to learn his ways, and he helps them to walk in his ways. And you don't have to spend much time around toddlers to hear the phrase, no, I do it. Right? It's just sort of baked into that age where the, the will of a little human being, whether a boy or a girl, starts to express itself, and they want to do it themselves. And I was thinking about that this week because I heard that a time or two. Um, and you just take one of the examples, like washing your hands. And my little boy is saying, no, I do it. And of course, I'm the one who's asked him to do it right? And I'm the one who's led him to the bathroom. And you got to go, hey, like, is this, is this a with me moment for a child? Even though he's pounding sort of the sink and going, hey, I'm going to do this myself. Well, maybe. But I could tell you that most of the time if he says, I'm going to do it, and then I leave him alone, he'll go, hey, no, 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 where'd you in? He wants to do it, but he wants me to be there. And then if you think about it, and he says, no, I'm going to do it, You gotta go, hey, well, where did the we got birds in the house? Where did where did the water come from? Where'd the soap come from? Where'd the towel come from? The stool come from? Where'd the house come from? How is he doing it alone? Oh, he's not. And the possibility of a two-year-old or a three-year-old to get all of those things himself is what? Impossible. But He's operating with the posture of dependence, even in his own resolve and will. He's saying, yes, I'm going to do this, but I also still know that I'm dependent upon the water bill being paid and the soap being filled and the towel being there and the stool being there and even the one who've gone before me teaching me how to wash my hands, modeling it for me, and even the ones asking it of me, right? There is within the child even their most strong-willed moments an implicit dependence on the Lord for all things. And that's what's supposed to mark us. Not that the gospel would say, hey, stop, be passive, do nothing. But that our hearts and our will would be engaged in such a way that we are entirely dependent upon the owner of the house, upon the Father's provision. So what do you learn about the gospel from this story? I think one of the things that you learn is that when with me is the way, there's a lot of fallout. There's judgment that happens. There's comparison that happens. There's despair that creeps in. Or there's pride in achievement. But in a with God spirituality, there's hope. There's joy. There's provision. There's trust. The comparison game starts to fall away. Judgment starts to diminish as we begin to see people as God sees them. See, with God, all things are possible. And the gospel holds that forward to us because it changes us radically. Not only vertically, of course, because it's an impossibility for anything to change vertically with us. But horizontally as well. As the gospel begins to shift your heart such that you more and more begin to see life as with God, providing all things, even though your strong will is still engaged, what happens is the way you relate to others starts to shift and change. So that you can love in new ways because you've been looked upon in all your lack and been met with the fullness of God's love. Let's pray. Father, teach us. Teach us the good news. We don't want to be those who... Drift into a kind of religiosity that that white knuckles our way, that pulls the cord over and over again trying to make something happen. But we want to be those who have a with God approach to life. A with God is an all things are possible approach to salvation. A kind of people who see our own need and who don't hide from it, but who come admitting our lack so that we might rest in the fullness of your love. Help us see the way this changes things vertically, that we can't actually be right with you apart from your righteousness given to us. But help us also see the way that this begins to reform and make whole the ways that we relate horizontally. Helping us begin to love others with the kind of love that you've shown to us. So change us more into your likeness, we pray, for the sake of your beautiful name and for the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, church, let's respond. Let's uh, respond to God in song, singing praise for what he has done, that all things are possible with him. And then let's respond in prayer. Coming honestly to the Lord, admitting your lack. Like, what would it be if on Sundays we came with a kind of expectation that, that we got real with the Lord? That, like, our lack, our doubts, our fears, our sins, the worst things we've done, we should bring them to the Lord and Him meeting us in those spaces. What if it, what if it became more and more normal because we met with the Lord here that we began to meet honestly with one another elsewhere? Sharing the real stuff of our lives so that people could actually know and see our lack and because of the gospel not judge us for it, but love us in spite of it. Helping us to embrace a fresh faith. So let's pray to the Lord in honesty. And then um, let's respond with communion remembering the, the broken body, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus, the way in which he was given away completely to us, the poor, so that we might receive from the Lord. He followed the Father all the way through. And let's, res- let's remember that and let's respond in praise for his sacrifice so that we might have a glad-hearted one as well as we follow him. In Jesus' name, I'm going to pray for this meal. God, would you bless it? Would you nourish us with it? It's so small, so meager, yet it points to something far greater. And so would you, God, awaken a kind of deeper faith and trust in you such that our pretending and our performing slides away and that a a deep trust in you A with God mindset comes to stay and mark our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.